The scripture reading today is Genesis 49:33 through chapter 50. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his face, his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Malpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. 
They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning, we have finally come to the end of the life of Joseph, as well as the end of the entire book of Genesis, and in fact, our, the end of our series on the life of Joseph that we've been going through this summer. The theme that we've been tracing through this story the past few months is that Joseph's life follows a pattern, which we have called the way of the cross. We've seen that the way of the cross is a way of life. It is a pattern of living that it embraces difficulty and embraces hardship as gifts that are from the Lord, that are meant for our good. It's a path of self-sacrifice, a path of being willing to suffer, to suffer for the sake of others, to suffer even unjustly for something one, uh, when one has done no wrong. This is the path that our Lord Jesus Christ himself walked when he was on earth, and we call it the way of the cross because this is the path that led him to the cross where he died on our behalf. And we've seen in multiple points throughout this story how Joseph is a type. He's a shadow. He's someone who prefigures Christ and points us forward to him as the great fulfillment of this pattern, of this way of life. But the way of the cross is also a path that Jesus has called his disciples to follow him on. He tells us in Mark eight thirty four, If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So this isn't only a path that Jesus walks, but it's a path that he calls his followers to follow him on. To follow after the same pattern. And so Joseph is not only someone who points us forward to Christ, but he's also an example for us about how we can also follow in Jesus' footsteps. How we can also take up our cross and come after him. He exemplifies how we can faithfully do that and obey that call. But we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that this story is just all about Joseph, that Joseph is the actual hero of this story. If you recall the very first sermon where we preached starting in chapter 37, that this is actually not even Joseph's story. This is the story of Jacob's family. Joseph features most prominently in it, but Joseph actually isn't the hero of this story. The hero of Joseph's story is the same hero of the whole book of Genesis. He's the same hero of the whole Old Testament and even throughout the entire Bible. And of course, that is God himself. The story of Joseph is the story actually about God and about what God has been doing. And so as we bring this series, as we bring the life of Joseph to a close, we need to take time to consider and reflect on what is it that God has done? What has God been doing? We've seen God doing many things. God has been caring for Joseph, even, even as a slave, even as a prisoner. We saw how God has protected the family of Jacob, how he has transformed the lives of his other sons, and how he has brought them to a place where they will be fed, where they will be cared for. And that Joseph was instrumental in doing that. But in one way, if we could sum up in one, way, one thing what God has been doing in all of these things, God has been showing his faithfulness to his people. 
He has been keeping his promises. Promises that he made to Joseph when we first met him in his dreams. Promises that he made to his father Jacob, to his grandfather Isaac, to his great-grandfather Abraham. God has been keeping his promises. So the most important thing then, as we conclude the life of Joseph, that we must understand about him, is that the life of Joseph is not so much about his faithfulness to God, although he was a faithful and obedient man. But what we should remember is God's faithfulness to him. God who kept his promises to him, even when it looked like God had left him even when it looked like he'd been betrayed and abandoned and left alone. God was faithful. This is the the same key to understanding not just the life of Joseph, but the entire Bible. What is the Bible, in fact, if not a story of how God repeatedly, consistently keeps his promises and is faithful time after time after time, even as his people are unfaithful to him. This is also the key to understanding how we also can follow Jesus in taking up our cross and coming after him, walking the way of the cross. Remember that it's not so much about our faithfulness to Jesus that matters in the end, but his faithfulness to us. That he lovingly graciously calls us. He sustains us. He gives us his spirit. He carries us along this road every step of the way. This is a story of God's faithfulness. Uh, Ernie Gordon was a Scottish soldier who fought during World War II Uh, And he wrote a memoir about his experiences uh, called To End All Wars, um, which has actually been made into a movie. Um, But he was deployed to the Pacific Theater during the first years of the war when the Japanese army was just an unstoppable machine advancing through the South Pacific. Ernie and his unit were all captured and they were taken as prisoners to POW camps in Burma and Thailand where they worked on the infamous death railway. It was called that because these POWs endured such horrific treatment and conditions, and many of them died. But Ernie Gordon survived, and not only did he survive, but he actually, a man who had grown up in the church but had left the faith, it was through his experience in that camp that he first truly came to know and understand the love and kindness of God. It was there where he first understood God's faithfulness. And after the end of the war, as he's on a ship on his way home, he's reflecting on his experience and he says this, the experiences we had passed through had deepened our understanding of life and of each other. We had looked into the heart of the eternal and found him to be wonderfully Kind. How does that happen? How does a man who has been through such hell on earth, such horrific treatment, come away saying, I met God there? 
and he was kind. How does Joseph come to the end of his days reflecting back on everything that he'd been through, saying, God has been faithful to me? How can you this morning, reflecting on the things that God may be putting you through, or may be putting your loved ones through, reflecting on the suffering and the hardship that you see around you, how can you say, God is kind to me? God has been faithful. He has kept every one of his promises. We're going to see from our passage this morning three scenes in which we see played out how Joseph reminds us of God's faithfulness to him. We're going to see how Joseph uh, trusts in God's faithfulness as he buries his father. We're going to see how Joseph remembers God's faithfulness as he forgives his brothers and how Joseph hopes in God's faithfulness as he promises their future deliverance from Egypt. First then, the first, in the first scene, we see Joseph trusting God's faithfulness as he buries his father. Now, Jacob had made all of his sons swear to him that they would not bury him in Egypt, but that they would take his body back to Canaan and bury him in this cave, in this little plot of land. Seems like an odd request. But it makes complete sense when you realize that Jacob is doing this out of trust, out of faith, that God will keep the promises that he made to his grandfather Abraham. When God called Abraham out of his homeland in Ur, he said, Go to a land that I will show you. And when God brought him into Canaan, he took him up to a high place. And in chapter 13, he says this, Lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Now, Abraham never saw that promise come true. He did not see it fulfilled. He only experienced a small taste of it. A small foothold, which was this cave and the land that it was on, which he purchased as a burial site for his wife, Sarah, and where later he himself was buried. Abraham's son, Isaac, also did not live to see this promise come true. But Isaac also first buried his wife, Rebekah, there, and then he was buried there when he died. Jacob had already buried his wife Leah in this cave before they had gone to Egypt. And now he's saying, take me back there. This is our foothold. This is our foretaste. It may be all we have of this promise, but we are holding on to it. We are holding on to it because we trust that God will be faithful and keep this promise. The Israelites, as they were in the wilderness, who were the first readers of the book of Genesis, would have come to this point seeing, that's where we're going. We still haven't seen this promise come to fulfillment either. We have just spent 400 years in Egypt, but now God is taking us to our homeland. 
And God is calling them to trust in Him as well, that He will be faithful to keep His promise, that this land will be theirs as He has promised. Similarly, we are also called to trust in God's faithfulness. But God doesn't promise us an earthly homeland. He has not promised us any real estate here on earth. But Jesus promises us much more than that. He tells his disciples in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus has promised us an eternal homeland, a place with him where he is coming to take us so that we could be with him forever. We also have promises that we can trust in, as Jacob did, as Joseph did, as the Israelites were called to do. And so Joseph trusts in God's faithfulness. He imitates the faith of his father Jacob by obeying his command and taking his father back to Canaan and burying him in this family burial plot. But after he returns, Joseph is not done grieving. There's yet another occasion for grief that comes up after the family returns. And that's the second scene that we see here. And, that is, and in it we see that Joseph remembers... God's faithfulness as he forgives his brothers. Just so we get a gravity of the situation, I want us to take a moment to try to imagine, and and if you want to close your eyes and do this, you're welcome to, but let's try to put ourselves in the brothers' shoes. Now, it's been around 40 years since we sold our little brother Joseph to Egypt as a slave. 40 years ago. But we can still hear his screams. We can hear him protest as we beat him, as we take his clothes. We hear his cries from the bottom of the pit that we threw him in. We see the terror, we see the disbelief in his eyes as slave traders count out 20 silver coins to give us for him. We see tears on his face and despair in his eyes as he's dragged away in chains. And yet we can still recall how funny we thought it was. Not one of us felt an ounce of regret. We all believed he deserved it. We were glad to be rid of him. It was the easiest thing we ever did. Because we still remember how much we hated him. And for 22 years, 22 years, we thought it was done. Our father believed the lie that we told him. He, knew, he, he believed that an animal had killed him. And we told ourselves, surely he's dead by now. The life expectancy of a slave is not that long. But 18 years ago, 
We come to Egypt and we find out that not only is he alive, but he has risen from a slave to the second most powerful man in Egypt. Second only to the king. And not only that, he's happy to see us. He claims he forgives us. Can you believe it? Joseph isn't making us pay. He's not making us pay anything back for what we did to him. Not only is he letting us go, but he's asking us to go get our father and bring him back. Go get our families. Bring them here to Egypt. He's providing jobs for us. He's providing homes for us. He's providing food for us. And for 17 years, Joseph has taken care of us. But now our father is dead. And just before he died, he made Joseph the head of the family. And all of these memories start rushing back. Now that the funeral is over and and the time of grieving has done, these memories come back and doubt begins to grow. We can't escape the sense of fear and dread that the other foot is finally about to fall. We are finally about to get what we have, what we deserve and pay back for what we did. After all, we're in this, this land where this is his land and he's second only to the king. He's head of the family now. There isn't a thing that he could do to us that anyone would would protest or hold him accountable for. And our father isn't here to keep the peace or protect us anymore. We're guilty. And we know it. And we've still not paid anything for what we did to him 40 years ago. Do you begin to understand their fear? you begin to relate to the panic that was starting to set in. And so his brothers come up with this ruse. I I, I call it a ruse because it's unlikely that Jacob ever said this, but it's it's well-intentioned and it's quite certain that this would have been Jacob's wish. So they come up with this ruse to to plead with Joseph and ask his forgiveness. And, And it's They are showing real remorse here. They're not denying what they did. They're not trying to hide. They're willing to make amends. In fact, these same men who sold Joseph as a slave are now willing to make themselves and their families his slaves. But instead of accepting this offer... Instead of being angry with his brothers, Joseph weeps again. It's the third time he's wept for his brothers. And in every occasion, it has not been out of anger, but out of pity. He weeps with compassion for them. Because they still don't understand what it means to be forgiven. They still haven't seen God's faithfulness. 
in this. Joseph does not absolve them. He does not deny what they did. But Joseph recognizes, and he's telling them to recognize that God is stronger than they are. That God is greater than them and what they did to him. They meant to do him harm. They did do him harm. But it was God's purposes that have withstood and not theirs. Because God's faithfulness is greater than their sin. They did sell him as a slave, but God himself is the one who brought Joseph to Egypt so that his family could be saved. And so Joseph, instead of choosing to only remember all the hardships he's been through, instead of focusing on all the betrayal and, and, and hurt that he's endured, Joseph is remembering, first and foremost, God's faithfulness through it. Joseph is choosing to remember how God was with him through it all. That through the midst of it, God kept all of his promises. Every last promise that God made to Joseph came true. And it was through what his brothers did to him. So we ought to remember as well when we are wounded and hurt by others. That God's faithfulness is stronger than their sin toward us. Do we find it hard to forgive those who have hurt us and sinned against us? Remembering God's faithfulness is the key. Remembering that God can turn the evil things that have happened to us on their head to serve His purposes sets us free to forgive. Remembering that it is God's purposes that stand and not those who mean to do us harm. In fact, we should not feel anger or, or want to take out vengeance on those who sin against us because we, we actually, like Joseph, should be moved to pity and compassion for them because it's actually God that they're fighting against. It was God's purposes that his brothers were trying to thwart. But they could not win. And when the world hurts us, when people sin against us as God's people, they cannot thwart God's good purposes for us because God's faithfulness is greater than their sin. Another reason, though, that we can forgive is that we have to remember how much we've been forgiven. We've seen time after time that we shouldn't identify ourselves with Joseph in this story. Rather, we've seen multiple times that we're much more like his brothers. We are the ones who need forgiveness. We need forgiveness just as much, if not more, than we need to forgive. We have all hurt people just as much, if not more, than we've been hurt by people. And we have all hurt God 
most of all, because all our sins are against him. All our sins are unfaithfulness toward him who has been most faithful to us. And yet God continues to show us faithfulness. God grants us forgiveness in Christ. God's faithfulness, his ability to turn evil on its head, his faithfulness to forgive us, sets us free to also forgive. And God not only sets us free to forgive, but he commands us and expects us to forgive. We're told in Colossians 3, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so Joseph forgives his brothers because he can look back on God's faithfulness. But Joseph isn't just looking back. He's also looking ahead. Joseph is looking forward to God's future faithfulness. This is the third and final scene that we see as Joseph's life comes to a close. We see that Joseph hopes in God's faithfulness as he promises deliverance from Egypt. In many ways, this section parallels the earlier section on Jacob's death. Uh, we see their, their ages given, how long they lived in Egypt and how they settled there. We see Joseph also adopting his grandson as Jacob had adopted his grandsons. And we also see instructions given to their children regarding their burial. And yet, there is a very important distinction here. There is a key difference. Whereas Jacob says, don't bury me here, but take me back and bury me in Canaan. Jacob says, don't, Joseph says, don't take me out yet. Don't bury me here. But keep my body here with you so that when God comes and rescues you, don't leave me behind. Take me with you. Take my bones with you so that I may share in this great deliverance that God has promised. Joseph knew that God had promised Abraham. In Genesis 15, he said, Know for certain that your offspring would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In the very next book, within the very few next pages after Genesis, we see this promise fulfilled. Although 400 years pass, God keeps this promise. When he brings Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he delivers them through Moses and inflicts great signs and wonders on Egypt, bringing judgment on them. And we see the Israelites keep this promise that they had made to Joseph. In Exodus 13, we're told Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you from there. The Exodus is the great deliverance moment in the Old Testament. It's the moment Israelites constantly would refer back to throughout their history. And it's a moment that God continually reminds them of. He is the God who brought them out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. And so the Israelites, in the wilderness, walking toward the promised land, who were the first people to read the book of Genesis, would have come to the end of the book, and they would have said, wow, 
Did you hear what Joseph said? Did you hear what he promised? That literally just happened. Isn't it amazing how God is faithful to keep his promises? Now we can know for certain that God will continue to be faithful. He will take us to the promised land and he's going to take care of us there. Isn't this amazing? We ought to remember how those Israelites would have felt as they read this conclusion to Genesis as they were on their way to the promised land. We need to remember that because God is also faithful to us. When we feel like we're stuck in bad situations, we all face many difficulties, difficulties, many challenges in life. There are many moments in those where we feel stuck. We feel trapped. These moments may last years. Or they may last weeks or months. We may feel at times like Joseph when he was in prison, forgotten, abandoned. We may feel even like the Israelites who were left for 400 years in Egypt. And yet God never broke his faithfulness to them. He kept all his promises. He will keep his promises to us as well. And that is how we know he's good. That is how we know he's faithful. He's with us through it all. Going back to the story of Ernie Gordon... Ernie Gordon um, shares how in each of the POW camps there was one building in particular that was an ominous shadow in all the camps, and that was the death house. And true to its name, this was the building where men who were sick, exhausted, starving to the point where they no longer had the strength to work or even to stand, would go there to die. In his story, Ernie shares about his own experience there in the death house, spending days there during with a bout of diphtheria. And yet it was through the care of two men, Dusty Miller and Dinty Moore, two Christian men, who nursed him back to health, who cleaned his sores, who brought him food from their own portion. It was through them that Ernie came to know the faithfulness and the kindness and the love of God. And that same kindness then spread like wildfire through the camps as men sacrificially cared for one another, literally laying their lives down to bring their comrades back to life and keep them alive. And as he reflects on his experience and on his entire life story, Ernie Gordon shares this in the conclusion of his book, that this 
is the good news for man. God in Christ has shared his suffering, for that is what God is like. He has not shunned the responsibility of freedom. He shares in the saddest and most painful experiences of his children, even that experience which seems to defeat us all, namely death. He comes into our death house, and he leads us through it. This is the faithfulness of God. God may call us to follow him in the way of the cross. God may lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. God may even permit us to be brought into the house of death. But God's not done there. He will lead us through it. And he has led us through it. Jesus Christ came into our death house. He came so that we could experience his life. He has brought us out again into resurrected, glorious hope, new life. That is the faithful God that we worship. That is the faithful God that we serve. That is the faithful God who bids us, come, take up your cross, and follow me. I invite us all this morning to do so, knowing that it's his faithfulness that carries us along the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great faithfulness. We thank you that even in our darkest moments, in our times,